Welcome to Guys with Cancer, the podcast you never knew you needed. It's by Guys with Cancer, for Guys with Cancer, and everyone else. And now, here are your hosts, Rudy Fishman and Jeff Nerman. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 11 of the Guys with Cancer podcast, podcast you never knew you needed. And Jeff, I want to, now that we have reached our tween stage, I sense that there's some relationship issues going on between you and I. Um, do you feel like there's any sort of tension or issues or uh, partying or maybe a little bit of caretaker fatigue or um, anything like that in a relationship? I, I, have, I have felt a disturbing distance that has developed between us. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've actually brought you? two guests with me. Yeah, this is a little bit of an intervention of sorts. Okay, good. Um, I brought along two friends, uh, Dr. Patricia Robertson um, and Dr. Sarah Woods. They actually have a podcast of their own called Attached that specializes in dealing with relationship issues in particular, um, they have kind of an unusual take, which is why I think they're kind of nice for us, in that, that they generally tend to um, look at pop culture and sort of good-bad advice. Are you interested in meeting them? Absolutely. Hello. Thank you so much for having us on. My name is Dr. Patricia Robertson. I am an assistant professor out of the University of Tennessee in the College of Nursing. Yeah, I'm Dr. Sarah Woods. I agree. Thank you so much for having us on. I'm an assistant professor and director of behavioral health in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. In, in dealing with the idea of relationships and when cancer impacts that, obviously it's a little bit different than, say, like, you know, whether it's a couple or interpersonal stuff with families and parents and kids, right. that sort of thing. Um, what you're talking about is relationships and, and particularly marital relationships and what happens to that relationship when um, one of the partners is diagnosed with, with cancer. And based on the research, we know that it can be quite devastating to that relationship. There's some research that says that up to 50% of relationships can reach a disillusion by the end of, of, of the cancer treatment. But also, if you dive a little bit more into that literature, that research, what we also know is there's a gender difference there. there that divorce rate is much higher if the woman is the patient is diagnosed with cancer compared to the the male. Divorce rates are much lower if the uh, man is diagnosed with cancer. It's around three percent, where it's much higher for for women. Is there any learning as to why that is? Is it? I mean, I, I hate to seem like the cynical male, but is it because men just aren't as dedicated to to marriage in general, and they and that they are too willing to abandon their spouse when the when the going gets tough, or or do we know? I mean, that might be one way to phrase it. I think the researchers wouldn't have phrased it that way. I think they're um, is some evidence maybe more of the socialization of, of gender, that women might be more socialized to be caregivers in our society where men uh, might not be or are less socialized to immediately take on that role. 
But like what you're saying, the, the researchers definitely said that, you know, women uh, maybe are more committed to that dyad staying together than men. There hasn't been an extensive amount of research looking at that, that why, but I think what you're saying is potentially one of the many reasons that that happens. And, and you know, honestly, that could, that those reasons for the disillusion can be different per the couple, right? It's not necessarily one reason that causes all divorces. There are a, a multitude of reasons that could be very unique to each specific couple as well. I remember when I was first diagnosed and I started meeting people in the cancer world of all, all sort of varieties, just sort of the amount of um, divorce and couple separation that occurred, it wasn't really something that I even expected or anticipated encountering once I started to get to know people. But one of the angles, and maybe it's not as obvious as it might seem, you know, I know one person who wound up getting divorced, and it wasn't because of any other issue other than the person who was undergoing the cancer experience directly, the patient, kind of found a different perspective on life and sort of realized that mm. it wasn't the person for him. In this case, it was a male, but dealing with issues of mortality, he was like, is this really how, who I want to spend the rest of my life with and mm-hmm. so forth? And there were other issues in the relationship prior to that anyway, but I think it exacerbated a lot of issues. I think you're really hitting on something there, that a, a lot of the, the quality of the relationship during treatment is very much dependent on the quality of the relationship prior to the diagnosis. Yeah. That, that is very mm-hmm. predictive. Well, how does it change if there are, say, younger children I think that's a really great question, and I don't really know if we actually have the answer to it. What we do know is in in general, in the general population of relationships, young children can be quite a strain on the relationship. We see a lot of uh, relationships kind of dissolving around that young childhood age, but then we find if they make it through young childhood, they they tend to last, and then there's kind of another time period of launching children that we see kind of a dissolution as well. So really, I guess the only information I have would be um, based on like general uh, research that small children, though we love them, can really be a strain on on a relationship. It's a stressful time for all um, parents that moving into new roles as parents and trying to work really hard with that life-work balance is, is, is challenging for all couples in addition to couples with, um, uh, with who one partner is diagnosed with cancer as well. There is already a shift, as Patricia is describing, that happens in couples when they have children join the family. And then when you're facing a really serious chronic illness, just like you're describing, there is additional shifts that need to happen to provide some of that caregiving support, but also to manage household responsibilities, child care responsibilities. So that can be, that can create some additional distress. But um, as Patricia is mentioning, I think some of what's really important to consider is the quality of the relationship and the quality of communication that happens between partners as patterns that are established before a diagnosis of cancer are really, really important for understanding how that can unfold after a diagnosis of cancer, that there are interruptions to some of that communication and and quality and how we connect, but there are also some ways that we can encourage couples to, to do that in a way that really promotes them healing together. There are lots of people who experience cancer and describe a desire to strengthen their relationships and have more of an intentional focus 
on how they want to connect with their partner because sometimes there is more of a focus on what really matters sometimes and, and less on kind of what would have been um, maybe kind of bickering or small conflicts before because there is just a little bit more of meaningful engagement. And I think, I think it's also really important to think about that sometimes partners want to avoid talking about what they're worried about or what they're stressed about. And medicalizing somebody's illness can be a really uh, protective factor. In any couples, we see uh, sometimes a focus on partners wanting to avoid disclosing what they're worried about or what they're concerned about in order to protect the people that they care about, which can be a relationship process that we really want to shift in couples because that can kind of compound the stress that couples feel when they're not exactly sharing those emotional reactions that they're having. And um, so encouraging emotional expression within couples where they're trying to protect each other and kind of dance around what they're worried about can be really important. But I think one thing we sometimes encourage couples to do is what's called process conversations. So you can talk about the process about how you go about communicating versus the content, like actually what you're talking about. I feel like it's hard for me to talk to, talk to you sometimes just because I don't want to burden you or, or whatever. Can we have a conversation about how we can better communicate about that so I can better express my emotions um, to you? I think those types of conversations, though they feel maybe somewhat awkward sometimes are really important to have. It's not necessarily, again, about the content, but how you're communicating, having a good conversation about that. It's kind of related to that is something that, you know, I know that this is very common in speaking with other sort of cancer patients is the idea of kind of shielding your partner and people in your life, whether it's your family or close friends or whatever, from too much. Like, I find that I actually have separate social media accounts, and I know I'm not alone. There's a lot of people that have this one that is more sort of cancer-based and one that is more sort of everyday life, um, just because I know that compassion fatigue is a real thing. Yeah, it's interesting that um, that you're describing it that way, I think, Rudy, because it's, it's, it has the sometimes the possibility to become in, in order to protect our partners and our family and our friends from, from what you're carrying, it, it sometimes can take on also a, um, a one-sided perspective. So sometimes what we see with, with patients and their partners is in an effort to protect them and kind of not broach these conversations, when their partner pulls back at, or is kind of showing signals of like, oh, I, this is a lot, or I've had too much, or I don't know if I can have this conversation one more time. Sometimes there's this process, too, of that, that is a fit, and that's what's going on for them, and they need a break, and that's relevant. But other times, it's a misattribution process of I feel like you're pulling back, and that, that's hurtful to me, and I feel like you're fatigued and tired and, and setting a wall where I need you to actually kind of show up for me and really talk about this really hard stuff and listen to my stories and my experiences and this trauma. But other times, it's not exactly why they're pulling back. And sometimes they're, 
they, we find that the caregiver, that other person, is wanting to sometimes get more engaged, but they pull back in an effort to protect the other person. So it's this really interesting dance that happens in couples and families that is part of why I think Patricia and I are talking about how important it is to facilitate conversations between, between partners that can really help to kind of grow support for those different perspectives, which can otherwise be really challenging to kind of voice on your own, or at least the first time around. Right. Like if you're feeling a, a sense of, uh, of that my partner is pulling back or and you might attribute and attribution means you're, you're applying meaning to a behavior, and that oftentimes that attribution can be incorrect. We're human creatures. We like to make sense of things, and so you see a behavior and we want to attribute meaning behind it. And sometimes, and this is true across relationships, we attribute wrong meanings behind. Uh, and the way to fix that, it's really easy, you engage in conversation. You say, oh, I noticed that this happened. Again, this, we engage in this process conversation. When I was trying to talk about X, I noticed you behave this way. To me, it feels, so again, you're, you're saying how I feel, right? To me, it feels like maybe you're trying to be distant, but I might have that wrong. Can you help me understand what, what's going on here and have a conversation about process of, of communication so the next time it happens, um, things look different? And also, you can understand the meaning for why it looked like they pulled back so you don't perhaps misattribute, like Sarah was saying, misattribute meaning to that behavior. I think a really good example of that is uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who has, happens to have breast cancer, and she, one of the side effects of her treatment is neuropathy, which is very common with a number of cancer treatments, and mm-hmm. fibromyalgia for other people might just be like chronic nausea and things like that. And, and she was just sort of talking about how dating is hard because she just physically doesn't want to be touched. Absolutely. And if you just have that little conversation or that I noticed you moved away, are you feeling in pain or did I do something to, to frustrate you? And they're like, oh, no, I'm just feeling super nauseous today. Can we figure out an, another way to connect right now? Because right now the, the touch or movement on the couch is really making me feel sick. It's a, it's a simple, it's what a 10-second conversation, and if you have that base of an understanding and that open line of communication is, is there, it helps maintain the strength of that relationship, or as Sarah was saying, that support, and you're really building support and understanding in that relationship. Okay, well, here's a, here's a, here's a good one. Right. See what you guys do with this, this one. Right. Um, as, <laughs> as, as you know, Patricia, I have two young children. I mean, how does one communicate to children this sort of thing? Of it? It's not them that's making you irritated. It's, it's, well, I mean, it is, but, you know, it's like I don't want them to not have fun around me. I want them to be themselves and, and be kids, but sometimes it's right. difficult. But what you're saying, saying is correct. You, you first started saying it isn't them, but, it is, but you're right. It isn't them. It just happens to be their behavior, but it isn't them at the core of them, right? It's just their behavior. And then that obviously is very difficult to explain to kids. But kids, particularly younger kids, um, need things explained to them multiple, multiple times. So for me as an adult, I might need things explained to me three times um, for me to understand that. But, but children's memory, their, 
growing so rapidly. Their memory is a lot shorter. They need things explained to them multiple, multiple times on a weekly basis in a calm uh, way, which is challenging because you feel like you've said it 20 times, and you definitely probably have. But that, that would be one tip I would, I would suggest is that repetitiveness, especially with young kids, just to help them um, remember things. I actually find that one one of the areas I struggle with the most is is, is my relationships with with other people, you know, with with friends, for example, and and how to communicate with them about what's going on with me. And I think Rudy and I have talked about this best. You know, you have some friends that you know you you um, they, they find out you have cancer and you basically never hear from them again. And and I don't really. I mean, obviously that's suboptimal, but I, I sort of get it because I, I, in my view, and you, you all are the professionals, but it seems to me that when somebody hears the word cancer, that, that it, it so often produces such a just overwhelming reaction of terror that they just can't process it, and so they, they, they don't want to have anything to do with it. But then, you know, I have, I have other friends, too, who, who are, you know, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, and every time I see them, they're asking me about it. And while I certainly appreciate their concern, I feel like that's a little bit uncomfortable too. I don't, I don't like being sort of like the center of attention in that way. You know, I, I don't want to be known principally for, you know, what I can consider to be a great deficiency that I have. So it's, it's very difficult, I think, to manage any relationship when, once cancer enters the picture. What I've worked with some of the patients that we see in our in our clinics about is is exactly what you're describing in terms of how important it is to know that their friends are supportive um, and how much their friends can show up for them. Some of their friends can really show up for them. And also this delicate balance of sometimes it just becomes too much because I don't want that to be the only thing you're asking me about and I don't want that to be how you identify me. And so the conversations I've had with, with those people have been about how to identify the boundaries that you're comfortable with, with those friends. And so for some people, uh, it's been about, are you and your friends doing kind of a guessing game, right? So they're worried about you and you want them to be concerned, but you don't want to, you don't want this to be the sole focus. Do they know that that's how you're feeling? And is there value or how can we practice having that conversation with your friends so that they understand this is, this is maybe kind of how I would like you to check in on the cancer piece. And then as much as possible, I'd like to have the rest of our relationship be about all the other stuff that is important to me about you and important to you about me. Because I, I have tended to find that those, those conversations are not necessarily ones we have very intentionally with our friends. And so you can, again, kind of feel this like back and forth tentative guessing game, this little dance that people are doing where you're hearing one side, you can easily imagine the other side about I'm, I'm worried and I want to check in, but I'm, I'm never quite sure how is too much. And then the other piece that we've talked about is, do you have a mediator that can either kind of help set that boundary for you when you're especially not feeling well? So do you have a partner or other family member that you're close to who is intimately involved in what's going on for you that can help set that boundary with your friends and also help disseminate information about the progress of your care so that they feel informed and then the way that they connect with you is not about that but about all the other things that you'd rather have friendship around. Those are, those are two pieces that we have 
that I tend to talk with people about in a way to make some of that bound, those boundaries a little more intentional. I just think it is a very unusual balance because I think also one thing that happens too is for the patient, there is sort of the, this duality where there is what you project to the general public of like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. I'm beating this mm-hmm. thing and, and, mm-hmm. and that. And then the other side where, which is probably exactly. sort of more the reality, I guess it's sort of the social media image versus the real image. It's like mm-hmm. everything is glossier and shinier on Instagram or Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you get to know somebody, it's a, a little bit grittier. I don't think the expectation is that you should open up to that, that level, open up that grittiness to, to everyone. You want to, because that's vulnerable, that takes energy, that takes effort. You want to make sure you're selecting people in your network that you can trust to open up that vulnerability. But it is important to open up that vulnerability. That vulnerability, that back and forth of, of support is so critical to our health. It's so critical to our well-being. We as human beings, whether we are sick or not, are social creatures. We need each other to survive. We need each other to be healthy. So making sure to pick those people that we can be vulnerable and open to is so important to our long-term well-being and and health. And I also think that that factor, um, kind of Jeff, what you are alluding to, is somewhat uh, socialized into us um, by gender, right? For some reason, we think that men shouldn't have this capacity to be open and and vulnerable to other people or just shouldn't do it when it's just not true at all. All of the research says that being vulnerable, having that support is healthy for all relationships, both men and women. I I still find it hard. Like when I I listen and I, I, I totally appreciate and agree with what you're saying, it's it's very hard for me to envision, nonetheless, like having mm-hmm. a very frank conversation with somebody, even somebody I'm close to, even my wife, you know, about you know, like along the lines of what you, you were suggesting, and I, and I think that's where having somebody who is trained, you know, to help you do that, because whether it's cultural or or whatever, it's so difficult for so many of us to to do that on our own. Yeah, I think. Uh, what you're describing makes so much sense in terms of it's a lot of why Patricia and I do relational therapy. We do couples therapy, family therapy, that that's our emphasis is on relationships because it is, you're absolutely right. It is one thing to teach and educate about this is what can be valuable. This is what the science says about relationships. It's another thing to invite somebody's support system in to have help them have that conversation and you can you can do that and practice that with just one person in front of you but it can also be so much more powerful and supportive if you have more than one person in that room with you to kind of help help practice that live time because what you're saying is absolutely true we know that about so many different things, so many different kinds of behaviors. If we're talking about, in general, all, all kinds of different health behaviors, we can teach and teach and teach about what healthy behaviors look like and how we should take care of our bodies. And then we absolutely know that a lot of people never follow through on that because if health education and health information was the only thing that mattered, all doctors would be perfectly healthy because they have the most information right. about what that should look like. And right. it's, yeah, it's just not how it works. It, it's a, it takes a lot to make change and it, it takes a lot of vulnerability and courage. 
kind of on that note, I mean, as, as I mentioned before, both um, Dr. Robertson and, and Dr. Woods are, have a podcast. One of my favorite parts of that podcast is that they end every episode with a segment where they explore sort of good and bad advice, sort of bad advice that maybe seems good at first and vice versa. And then and just sort of applying that to cancer and and relationships sort of touched upon a lot of stuff already that I think will be helpful to a lot of people listening to this. But if there's anything in particular that they both think is important for people to hear and touch upon and just basic sort of like your top one or your top two or three things to keep in mind when navigating cancer and relationships. So one one for me, I just want people to know that all of the feelings that you're talking about, the um, worry about your relationship, the challenges with communication is completely normal. You're not an outlier in this. This happens to all couples. All couples have conflict. All couples have disagreements. This is very normal, especially in, in couples where one of the um, people is diagnosed with cancer. For me and for a lot of people, that gives them solace, right? I'm not experiencing something that is wildly unique. But the solution to that and the, the, the realization is that not all couples have conflicts, but how they resolve those conflicts that makes the difference. So trying to not have that reactivity, trying to talk about the process, and always, if you misstep or if you do something you don't intend to, an apology always, a genuine apology, always goes a very, very long way in, in all relationships. So I think that would be my, my main take home. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that although a lot of what Patricia and I are referencing are maybe takeaways that we would suggest for a lot of or all couples, there's also something really unique that happens for couples facing cancer. And so one thing that I think I would really emphasize is the fact that how the demands that cancer places on couples evolves over time. And so it's really important to remember, I think, that there's an ongoing adaptation process that happens in families and with couples that is really normal. And what we know about that adaptation process and how families and couples change and evolve and how they react to cancer, but also the changes in how cancer places a demand through diagnosis and treatment and sometimes revisiting treatment, et cetera, can really affect the functioning of kids, parents, couples, friends. And so that's a really normal, a normal piece to keep in mind, that sometimes the kind of support you need up front changes a month later, is different a year later, and is different through different kinds of, of treatment and different, different aspects of the, the medical process. So it's important to check in with yourself and also with each other and your friends and family, too, about, about how, what that adaptation looks like, I think. I think that's kind of a, a, a good sort of spot to kind of wrap things up. Um, and, and I definitely, anybody listening to this, I recommend checking out the attached um, podcast. It's available pretty much everywhere. This podcast is available. Um, and, it, I mean, it's not just relationships. It's re- relationships as they apply to things like 
the Bachelor Shit's Creek <laughs> and all sorts of other things. I know when I first heard it, I know when I first heard it, I was really surprised and oddly compelled by a lot of the uh, the content that they discuss because I think it really makes you rethink a lot of sort of the accepted common knowledge of what's good and yeah. bad in relationships of all kinds. I definitely recommend that. Thank both Dr. Woods and, and Dr. Robertson for, for joining us. And we have a lot to talk about. I know that, Jeff, after this call is over. Yeah. Well, I, no, I would just like to say, first of all, um, thank you. And it was great to have you. And I, and I feel like really touched on so many important things that I think are unfortunately so often overlooked. Um, and I just want to know when can um, Rudy and I schedule an appointment for the two of us <laughs> to speak with you all. <laughs> you know, we'll put it on our calendar. Thanks for listening to Guys With Cancer. Want more? Visit guyswithcancer.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email us at guyswithcancer at gmail.com. This has been a production of Progressive Panther Media.